Please follow along as I read from Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Um, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I might bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in the presence, in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if, if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was at the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites um, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah as his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Our Father, everlasting, Lord Jesus, our crucified and risen Savior, Holy Spirit, our constant comforter, our triune God, you are the sovereign and eternal one. We gather as your created and redeemed image bearers, your beloved bride, the church. We come with minds desiring to be focused on you, with our hearts adoring you, in unity of spirit, or that we might trust you at all times. Lord, you are our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. You alone are the good shepherd. In you there is abundant life. You lead us to green pastures and beside still waters. And you restore anxious and weary souls. Even the darkest valleys. We will not fear because you are with us. 
you're always attentive to us. You provide for us. You guide us. You watch behind us. And Lord, you go before us. We find safety, comfort, peace, and joy in your omnipotent and loving nail-scarred hands. We cast our cares on you because you care for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As your children, we come to you with humble hearts, asking you that you might reveal your glory in this, your congregation, in this, the city that you have ordained, in this, the nation that you have raised up and blessed, and throughout this fallen world, We pray that you would fill our hearts with deep and abiding joy and gratitude. Help us to joyfully and sacrificially be the eyes, ears, hands, and feet of our Lord Jesus to each other and to our neighbors. Father, we pray that sentiment will not be the only basis for our gratitude during this Thanksgiving season that you will instill in our hearts a persistent and authentic appreciation for all your blessings and provisions. May our souls be saturated with thankfulness every day of our lives. Lord, as you have been generous to us, make us like you in this same way. Give us generous hearts, hearts that faithfully steward everything you've entrusted to our care. Lord, multiply our resources that your gospel may be advanced locally and globally. Lord, as we emphasize mission giving during this coming Christmas season, we pray that you would bless our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Lord, may you not only lead our church to meet the modest goal that we have established, but to exceed it. You own everything. And you have entrusted us as stewards over your possessions. We pray that you would guide us, that we might be generous. Now speak to us and convict us of your truth. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. India was once ruled by Muslim emperors named Mughals. In 1612, the heir to the throne, Shah Jahan, married a young lady by the name of Arjuman. This marriage was a true love story as she became uh, advisor, counselor, friend to her husband. They were inseparable, even during military campaigns, expeditions, she accompanied her husband. Unfortunately, she died in childbirth at the age of 39, only three years after he ascended to the throne. She was bearing their 14th child. Shah Jahan was uh, overcome by grief, and he wanted to preserve her memory. So he decided to create the finest sepulcher that had ever been built as a testimony of their eternal love. And it took almost 20 years, and it required the efforts of over 20,000 workmen 
and master craftsmen from all over India, Asia, and Europe. It was finally completed in 1648 on the banks of the river Yamuna in Agra, the capital of the Mughal monarchs. The graceful structure was a perfect fusion of Hinduism, Muslim styles. It had four minarets. It was made out of pure white marble. The quality of the workmanship was exquisite. We know it by the name Taj Mahal. It's still in existence, and it's visited by something like 8 million people each and every year. It's perhaps the most spectacular tomb in the world, built because one man loved one woman, and he wanted people everywhere to know that forever. Almost about 19 miles south-southwest of Jerusalem, there's a cave. Like the Taj Mahal, it has served as the burial site for a beloved wife. Like the Taj Mahal, it stands as an eloquent and lasting testimony to the nature of their relationship. However, unlike the Taj Mahal, it's not adorned in any way by human hands. There's nothing physically attractive about the cave. It was purchased for 400 pieces of silver 4,000 years ago, which speaks volumes about the faith of the grieving husband, Abraham. It is understated in its appearance, but it is much more important than the luxurious mausoleum that is the Taj Mahal. There are many interesting themes running through this 23rd chapter of Genesis, but none is as important as the main theme, which centers on Abraham's faith in God's covenant promise. I want us to focus on two primary points this morning. The reality of living in a broken world cursed by sin, as is evident by this man who buries his wife, his beloved wife, and then the blessing of living by faith in God's promise in spite of us passing through this broken, cursed world. So let's look at the reality of living in this broken world that is cursed by sin. We remember all the way back to the beginning of this journey through Genesis that God warned Adam and Eve that disobedience would bring death. The full impact was lost upon them in the moment. There's no way they understood what that meant. They, there's no way they understood the heartache, the devastation that death would bring. But afterwards, they experienced this utter devastation. You remember right after the curse was pronounced, after their sin in the Garden of Eden, God, it said, made skins for them, which means something had to die. An animal or animals were killed in order to provide skins to cover their shame, the, sh the shame of their sin. And then the unthinkable occurred. The eldest son, Cain, murdered his brother, Abel. In Genesis, we've seen sin's curse grow and expand. We saw God bring judgment through the flood and begin again, and we've seen the same sin continue to have its devastating impact upon all creation. Here we see 
we're reminded once again of the curse of sin upon creation. It simply says, and Sarah died. And Sarah died. Sarah dies 127 years. She walked on this earth. It was a remarkable and a blessed life. Sarah was a great woman of God. Sometimes we focus too much on some of the mistakes that she made. But she was a great woman. The Bible never tells us at any point in time to look to Mary as an example of a godly woman. But on two occasions, the Bible tells us to look to Sarah. To see an example in Sarah that is worthy of emulation. Isaiah chapter 51 verses 1 and 2. Listen carefully. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. And then again in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So she's held up as an example for all women to emulate. But Sarah was not perfect. She made an unwise decision in encouraging Abraham to take Hagar as a surrogate mother for his descendants. She treated Hagar and Ishmael harshly. She laughed in unbelief, you remember, when she overheard the promise from God that he would bring a child to bear when she was at age 90. And then when she was confronted in that laughter, she lied as if it never happened. Robert Candlish says this about Sarah. He says, For she too walked by faith, having favor with God, and waiting for his salvation in faith. Like being like-minded with Abraham, she left her early home and her father's house. In faith, she bore him company through the long years of his exile, cheering him amid many troubles and upholding him under many disappointments. Through faith, she received strength to conceive seed. And afterwards, even when Abraham himself was perhaps too much divided between the child after the flesh and the child of the promise, between his own righteousness and that of God, between the covenant of legal bondage and the covenant of grace and liberty, she seems to have had a more spiritual discernment than he had. She believed salvation to be in the line of Isaac alone, and her counsel to cast out the woman and her son obtained the sanction of God himself. It's most likely that they were married for more than a hundred years. They've been on the move for 60 years, having left Haran at God's bidding. She was not perfect, but she was faithful, faithful to Abraham faithful to God. You know, I hate death. I know we're not supposed to hate anything, but I hate death. 
The older I get, the more I hate it. I don't fear death, but I hate the impact of death. I hate everything about it. I hate the separation that it creates. I hate the corruption that it promises. I hate the heartache that it brings. We were not created for death. We were created for life and for worship. It's not natural. It's unnatural. Death is a curse brought upon us by our sin and rebellion. It is our enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Ecclesiastes 8.8, 8, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Hebrews 9.27 says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Death is exhausted to all of us. We're all going to encounter death. For those who have faith and trust in Christ, there is hope beyond death. Death is but an expectation of resurrection for us. But death still persists among us. Sir Walter Scott said, And come he slow or come he fast, it is but death who comes at last. Sarah dies. And not only do we see that Sarah dies, we see that Abraham cries. Abraham cries. James Montgomery Boyce says this is the first recorded instance of Abraham shedding a tear. The first time that he has cried. We do not read that he wept when he set out front with his retinue from Ur of the Chaldees. And later from Haran to go to Canaan. Though he was leaving his country, his people, and his father's household. We do not read that he wept. When news came to him of Lot's capture by the armies allied with Ketolaomer, he did not weep when God told him to sacrifice his only son Isaac, whom he loved. Yet here he weeps. Why? What's the difference? It's simply that death is our great enemy. Death is final, beyond any means for reversal. It seems permanent. It promises It craters our lives, leaving us to fight for the memories. We know and believe God's promises. We hold them tightly, but doubt and uncertainty still haunt us. The promises seem so far away. Faith is not based on our feelings. Faith is based on what we know. Faith is based upon a promise. Faith is based upon the Spirit of God equipping us to take Him at His word, to trust Him. Though it should not be severed from our emotions. It's not only emotional, but it's not distinct from emotion. We would expect nothing less than for Abraham to weep for his wife. More than a hundred years they've been together. They've been through thick and thin. There's something that happens when a man and woman spend that period of time. When they spend 40, 50, 60 years together, they grow together mentally, emotionally. Faith is not evidenced by a stoic and steely attitude toward death. 
Faith is measured by action taken in uncertain and difficult challenges. Faith is revealed by how we walk through this broken world. Abraham has learned to walk through this world well. He's walked through it faithfully. And even now, even with his heart breaking, as evidenced by the tears that he shed, he's walking in faith and trusting God. So the second thing I want you to see this morning is the blessing of living by faith in God's promise. If Abraham didn't feel the pain of such loss, that's what would be disturbing for us, isn't it? If he didn't cry, we would find that to be a problem. Not to mourn would be a great failure, but to mourn indefinitely is also a problem. We should mourn. We should suffer the depth of pain and loss, but we should also return, return to the hope that we have in Christ, not mourn as those who do not have hope, but mourning. Our mourning turns into gladness and expectation. And so we see Sarah dies, Abraham cries, and then Abraham buys. Abraham buys. What does he buy? This is an interesting development. How often has God reminded Abraham of his promise to give him a land? A promise to give him a land. Not just any land, but this land. A normal pattern here for most people at this juncture would have been to pack up everything and to take Sarah back to the homeland where the family resided and bury her there. But he doesn't do that. In Genesis 17, 8, he's clinging to God's promise. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land where you are wandering, where you're a nomad, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, two things come to my mind at this point, possible temptations that Abraham is likely to face here. One, if I'm Abraham, I'm thinking, why has the promise not been realized? I mean, my helpmate for all these years who shared with me in this promise and this expectation has died. And the promise has not become real yet. What happens to the promise if Sarah dies and then I die? Both are gone. Does the promise stop? Does it cease to exist? The second thing I'm thinking about is that if I'm Abraham, I may feel a little bit entitled at this juncture. I mean, didn't God promise him the land? And yet the Hittites think they have possession of it? It's not their land. It's my land. Why should I need to negotiate? Why should I need to talk to them about what I do or where I bury someone? God said, this is my land. Neither of these seem to be at the forefront of Abraham's thinking. We see nothing but humility in Abraham at this point. He sets out to acquire a piece of land as a suitable burial spot, not expecting or feeling entitled to anything in particular, Let's look at this negotiation, this exchange that happens as he works out the deal 
to purchase a burial spot. First, we see his request in verses 3 and 4. He requests a place to bury his beloved wife. No right or claim, he says, I'm a sojourner. I'm a stranger. I don't have any claim to this land. Not a property owner. Therefore, a permanent burial plot seems to be out of the question. Verses 5 and 6, he makes a generous offer. It seemed Abraham was only asking for the use of a burial place, only asking for something temporal. As a prince of God, they would not think of refusing him, as they indicate. They felt compelled to treat him in a favorable manner. But a borrowed grave was not acceptable to Abraham. That seems a little bit audacious, doesn't it? I mean, after all, Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb, but Jesus only had need of it for three days. Abraham has a much greater need. His need was one of posterity and permanence and faith in the promise of God that he would indeed give him this land. Verses 7 through 9, he gives a clarification. They think he's looking for a temporal grave. He says, I'm looking for a permanent possession as Canaan was to forever be his home. So he urged them to sell him the cave of Machpelah at full price, whatever your price, name your price. Not presuming upon anything but taking the high road here verses 10 and 11 a modification is made they offer him the cave but not just the cave but the field as well abraham declines the gift i'll not receive your charity he says but i will take the field and the cave Everything is agreed to except the price of the purchase. Now, this is a normal dance for this culture, this particular part of the world. You know, someone wants to sell something and he's reluctant to uh, name a price. And so he offers generosity. He's going to make a gift. And the other person knows he's not really intending it to be a gift, that he's really going at a price. But so this dance goes back and forth. And so everything is here except for the price. Abraham says, name the price. Well, they won't name the price, but he does state the value of the land. What's this? What's 400 shekels of silver between us? This is a passive-aggressive way of setting the price. What's 400 shekels of silver among us? So, Abraham bought a burial plot and planted a stake in the promised land. You remember we talked a few weeks ago about him planting a tamarisk tree? He planted that tamarisk tree knowing that being a slow-growing tree, it probably would not provide any benefit for his life. But he planted it with full expectations, with faith that his descendants would benefit from that tamarisk tree. And by the same token, he drives a stake in the ground by burying his wife in this land, the land that God has promised. And it's a gesture of belief. It's a gesture of trust that God is going to see through on his promise. So it's evidence that he believed God would do as he said. 
In similar fashion, Jesus came into this world as a man, perfectly obeyed and honored God's standard of perfection. And he took upon himself the sin of God's people, became a substitutionary sacrifice to atone for our sin. And he was buried in a tomb, planted, sown, that he might resurrect and that he might become the first fruits, the first fruits for all of us who put our trust and faith in him. First fruits of a resurrected eternal life. So we see that God-centered hope thrives. We're walking through a sin-cursed world, a despondent world, a chaotic world, and yet our faith and trust in God enables us to thrive. Abraham's going through a time of mourning, but his expectations, his faith and trust in God supersede what he's dealing with right now. He knows this is temporal. In many respects, this is a borrowed tomb. He's not, she's not going to need this tomb in the future because they're on their way to a city not made with hands, a city that God himself has made, just like you and I are on this journey to this same land. Abraham's purchase of a burial spot was an expression of faith in God's promise. Now, his promises are not exhausted in this life. They never are. In fact, those who trust in God have this life only as a beginning point. Abraham bought the cave convinced of the promise to possess the land. We have hope too. Hope for the full benefits of the promise of salvation. The moment of greatest mourning is the time of greatest faith. The time of greatest sadness and despondency for us in Christ is actually our gateway, our portal into hope. Let me help you get your minds around this. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Do we believe it? When we bury our loved ones who are in Christ, do we believe are they still there in that casket? It's always fascinated me, and I may be stepping on some toes this morning, but it always fascinates me how people who have buried loved ones want to keep going back and visiting the grave. Now, I, I get that that's, there's some connection there, but listen, if they're in Christ, they're not there, are they? Aren't they in the presence of the Lord? The outer shell, maybe the dust that remains is gathered there, but it's not them. It's not them. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. 1 Corinthians 15, 36 says, What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Romans 6, 7 says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Romans 8, 14 through 16 says, we are the true children of God. These are promises, promises that are hard for us to touch and feel at this point in time in this physical world, but promises that are very much real for those when we leave this world. In Christ, we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Let me ask you this week, do you feel like an heir of Christ? You know, when you get that, that tax bill and you wonder how you're going to pay it, when you get that uh, repair bill on your car and you're wondering where the money will come from, do you feel like an heir of the Son of God? Most of the time we don't, do we? We wring our hands, we get a little anxious. But the Scripture says, God has promised we are His heirs, we are heirs with Christ. In Christ, we're free from condemnation, Romans 8, 1. In Christ, we have a home especially prepared for us, John 14, 2 and 3. And Jesus said, if I go and prepare this place, I will what? I will what? I will what? I will come again that I may collect you, that I may gather you to myself. Is that a promise? You don't know its reality today, but it's a promise from God. Do we believe it? Do we trust Him? In Christ, we will never be separated from Him. Nothing, the Scripture says, can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans 8, 31 through 39. In Christ, we have a crown of righteousness prepared for us. Paul, as he's preparing to leave this world, says, I have fought the good fight. I have run my race. And for me, there is laid up a crown of righteousness, a crown of righteousness that is available to all who put their trust in Christ. In Christ, we have overcome this broken world. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. In Christ, every promise of God is fulfilled. We could go on all day long and talk about just the promises of God. He promised Abraham a land, a mere land. But Abraham wasn't looking to the dirt. He was looking to the promise of God. Abraham understood it was bigger than the land. He understood it was bigger than a piece of land. That's why it didn't matter that it was a cave that was unadorned. Lest he would have built a Taj Mahal. He was a wealthy man. He could have pulled that off. We cling to these promises even as we journey through this world. We trust that his promises are true even if not yet realized. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16 says this. These all died, talking about all these people in this wonderful list of faith, people who followed God in faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
by determining that Sarah and later he and his descendants would be buried in Canaan, Abraham staked his claim to the land which God had promised, which is an eternal land, a true homeland, where Christ himself sits on the throne and oversees it. 11, uh, Hebrews 11, 9 says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Abraham's a stranger. He's an alien. But the land is the promised land. It's where God told him to be. And it's where he committed himself to remain until God moved him into his heavenly abode. Stephen said in Acts 7 verse 5, Yet he, that is God, gave him, that is Abraham, no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. God promises come with a now and a not yet. God gave the promise to Abraham, but he did not experience its fulfillment. You know, the majority of God's promises to you will not be fulfilled in this life. You realize that, don't you? You realize that. One day you will die in faith, believing, trusting in God. When you face that death, when you face the exit from this world, will you continue to believe and trust in Him? That's the question that's put forth in this text today. Is Christ your hope? Is he your only hope? God's promises are yours only through and in Christ. Only one promise awaits those separated from Christ by sin, and that's judgment. It's the only promise that awaits them. And that can change today if you will believe the gospel and turn to Christ. Christian, are you living daily in the blessing of God's faithful promises? Have you driven a stake, not in the physical possessions of this world, but in the promise that God has offered you, the promise says that God provides for you? Understanding that there's an already, but there's much more that's not yet, that's still awaiting our exit from this world and entrance into His presence. If you're not living in the blessing promise of God's faithfulness, then you're living way beneath your privilege. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, for the testimonies that we have before us of how you have spoken to your people, how you have provided for them, Lord, and how you have encouraged and equipped them to follow you, to trust you to take that which is the already, but Lord, not to be limited to it, but to be encouraged by it, to trust in that which has not yet come to realization. I pray that, Lord, you would fill us with this same expectation that was filling Abraham at this time. Lord, to bury his wife, a sad, a somber occasion, Lord, with tears flowing, and yet he planted her there, in the shadow of your promise to give him a land, 
a heavenly land, a city made with your hands, Lord, not something that's a product of this broken world. We pray that that too might guide us and direct us. As we enter into this season, Lord, that focuses on gratitude, may our hearts indeed be grateful, thankful for all that you provide for us, for how you bless us. For we pray this in Jesus' name.